brought something. Some people who know my biography, they know that before I studied theology, I actually uh, was a carpenter. And I'm sure you all know what this is. This is a level. And this level is something that I was given when I finished my uh, training as a carpenter. But what do you do? Well, I also was given some other tools as well. I gave it away to Ronald. I don't know whether Ronald is here, so he already has my tools here. But this is a level. What do you do with it? You actually level something, okay? Well, obviously. So when I was uh, training to be a carpenter, it wasn't anything romantic, because sometimes you think, oh, you're just building nice uh, furniture. That wasn't the case. I usually uh, put in new doors and windows and had to put them in. Um, and I was given this, because unless you put in the doors in a level way, they won't work. And the windows won't open properly. So a level like this is there to level things. I don't know whether Ronald is here. Okay, uh, well, okay. I want to give him this level as well. So the other tool was a plane uh, or a planer that he was giving. Well, today I want to say something about the wedding in Canaan and it, one phrase in particular. And I believe the Lord will actually minister to you through that story. But before I start, I would like to read the story. It's in John 2. Verses 1 um, 12. to 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the wine that had been turned the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Ca at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. And then, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So that's about it for the story. It's always the question of the message, what is the wedding of Cana all about? Is it about that Jesus loves weddings? or um, That's good news, right? Or is it about that Jesus likes wine? Also possible. Some people think about that, that he simply enjoyed life and therefore his very first miracle was creating wine at a wedding. I'm sure he thought this is a cool opportunity, otherwise he wouldn't have gone. Or was he a kind of a magician? That he just, like that, turned water into wine. 
And you probably presuppose correctly that there must be something else to it as well, something with a more deep significance. So here it is the first of seven signs that Jesus did, and he revealed his glory. And the disciples put their trust in him. They believed in him. So I think we want both, right? And both are very interesting. But we still remain at the surface unless, surface unless we understand what these signs of Jesus are all about. Especially the Gospel of John speaks about seven signs, Sameach it's called, whether it's in, at Canaan or the last one was the raising of Lazarus, so seven miracles that took place and that are recorded. But before we understand the story, let's look at, take a look at something completely different. Something that we sing many times here and that we see and that's normal, but sometimes it, we might actually miss it. So we have to understand what the Bible says about this here, about the holiness of God, because the Bible teaches that God is a holy God, right? And when we want to understand this story properly, we need to understand something about God, the holiness of God. So I don't know how you feel, but many times we are champions in downplaying the truth of biblical truth, and especially when it's about God's holiness. We often confuse it with religious actions, candles that we might have, or some rites, or incense, or uh, hushed voices. But somehow it seems like we don't really understand much about God's holiness. Or maybe then when we sing a holy, holy kadosh with Paul Wilbur, we at least know what, uh, uh, how to say holy in Hebrew, kadosh. So yeah, we know that. But many times we don't understand so much about God's holiness, and it's not so easy to do. Many times we treat God as if he, I don't know, maybe you don't feel that way, but many times I come across this as if he was a religiously soft-smiling uh, Father Christmas, you know, Santa Claus. Sometimes, uh, you know, many years ago, they used to have these uh, sausage dogs with their nodding heads like that, and they had it in cars, but who of you would agree that this is not God's uh, principle of holiness, right? Well, we might have uh, different kinds of ideas. We might think of holy, holy things, holy places. We've got an idea of holiness in almost all world religions. So what is that, Kadosh? The significance of Kadosh is not just an intergalactic glorified state of being, but the, the meaning is actually to be set apart, to be separated from the world, separated from everything that might somehow be secular somehow separated from that, set apart. So God is holy, and therefore he is separated from everything else in the world. God is holy is a completely different dimension into what we live in. And God is set apart, he's separated from darkness, uncleanness, sin, and therefore, John writes, this is the message we have heard from him, God is light and there is no darkness in him. So God is holy. And God the Father is holy, God the Son is holy, and the Holy Spirit is also holy, because he is the Holy Spirit, right? 
And so, Isaiah 57, this is what the high and lofty one says, who dwells in eternity. His name is holy. So even his name is holy, okay? And so, Jesus is holy. So we have the um, demon-possessed man coming, say, Jesus, what, we have, what do we have to do with, it, with you? Jesus, we know you've come to destroy us. You are the Holy One of God. So Jesus is holy. And also the temple in Jerusalem was holy, okay? And so that was the place for God's pre presence. And the people of God went there to worship God. It was a place that was set apart from everything secular. And maybe just in the beginning, for us to understand, holy is not just a description of someone who is morally outstanding. It's not a standard that we have to meet somehow, but it's the result of a decision where and how I live. And at the same time, everything that God has made holy, that he has sanctified, somehow needs to reflect that holiness of God. So God is separated, set apart from sin. He cannot have any fellowship with sin. And so let me repeat that. Everything that somehow is holy in any way and that God wants and that he speaks about that it should be holy, whether it's his people, individuals, somehow they need to reflect that nature of holiness. And I think that we can hardly speak about holiness. We can hardly imagine what it is. We know that God's holiness is without limits, without limitations. God's holiness has no bounds. In Isaiah 40, 24, we read, Who do you want to compare me to? Who do you want to make my equal? Because so many times we limit him, how he is, how he can come, what he can do. But God is the Holy One. He is Creator. In six days, He made the world. He is the perfectly pure One. He is majesty and glory on high. He is the burning, consuming fire. So these are all titles of His holiness. But whatever happens, when this Holy God comes, He will never be able to have fellowship with sin. He is always separated, set apart from sin, uncleanness. And we read that in Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. It's a very powerful story about God's holiness. And let me read a few verses there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So we all know this song, right? We sing it many times. So he saw God himself. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe me, I cried, I'm ruined. So this is God's glory that you see. It can never 
come together with sin or guilt without a consuming fire breaking out. And so I said, woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. So the only way to have an encounter with God in His holiness is for us to adopt His nature. The only way is to separate from sin, to be set apart, to be cleansed from anything that's unclean, impure, secular, that doesn't love God. As sinful people, we cannot have an encounter with the living God without being purified first, without being willing to allow him to purify us. And we know that in the Old Covenant this was only possible through sacrifice and that's why they had the continuous sacrifice. But we also know, praise the Lord, in the New Covenant Jesus has become the sacrificial lamb. He has laid down his own life so we could be sanctified and come to the Father. Isaiah 59. But let's uh, just stop there for a moment and, and have a look at it. Sin is nothing just like something minor. It's not a moral misstep, but sin is something that always separates me from God. And the Bible doesn't make a difference whether it's big sin, small sin, much sin, but sin will always separate me. And Isaiah 59, it is your sins that have separated you from your God. And your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So sin is always something that will push away the God presence of God in your life. There is a shadow, a separation. So God is holy. He can't help it. He's full of love and mercy, full of goodness, yes. And he's ever-present everywhere. But he's holy. He's a holy God. And that's why the holiness of God cannot enter into compromise. He cannot deny himself. And therefore his word says that when we take seriously this holiness, we can only come to him in the attitude that we purify our hands before him, that we are cleansed before him. And this is only possible if you're born again to new life, if you've laid down your own life before him, because many people are struggling to meet with God and they're really striving hard for their entire lives, but they're not born again, like it says in John 3. You've never laid down your own life, you've never surrendered before God and you've never had that encounter with him. And I've got good news for you. If you're sitting here, you're trying to live a Christian life, you're trying to live a life pleasing to God, I believe God is looking at you and he loves you, but he also says to you, just enter in. I want you to be 
born into my kingdom. And once you're born into that kingdom, you receive new life. The things that you used to struggle with, with the law maybe, suddenly you become an heir, a child, and the Lord is filling your hands. And so it's, it's the word of God says for us to be imitators, that we are to be focused on him. And that's the difference bet between religion with hard work and striving and being a child. You know, a child lives in relationship, is focused on the father. A child lives in relationship. And this is what this message is all about. Now this it was just the introduction up to now and this is taking me to my topic so we can only please God when we are focused on him when we do his will our spiritual life only works just as I describe it here when our spiritual uh, building is leveled right if it's all in the right way. So our key for a spiritual life in the joy of the Holy Spirit and life that, you know, it's opposed to life without God that is becoming harder and harder and we are frustrated or whatever. The difference is, that is whether I am focused on him, whether I am in agreement with his will. So when I take a look at the 30, 40 years of my life with God and the 30 years of my ministry, I can only mention one point that makes the difference between spiritual life and life in the joy of the Holy Spirit and an inner fact that my heart is closed off and maybe spiritually I kind of die. The difference is always whether I live in agreement with the will of God or not. And now what does that mean? And now let's take a brief look at the parable and the story in of the wedding at Canaan. Now we could uh, mention so many things about this story, but I believe there's one thing that's key in the story. One thing that actually transforms water into wine. There's one thing that will change your life from a life of religious achievement and works to a life that is seeing God's miracles. One thing that makes the difference and that enables you to receive the miracles and we see that, you know, the wine runs out in John 2 verse 3 and Jesus said, well, the mother of Jesus comes to him and says, they have no more wine and then Jesus says, what do I have to do with you? You know, in Hebrew it's not quite so... Uh, impolite, but in verse 5 the mother says to the servants do whatever he tells you. So the miracle of the wedding at Canaan happened because the mother of Jesus lived in complete obedience and commitment. And so you don't uh, suspect me now of uh, becoming a Mary worshipper. I really have to tell you that Mary truly has a special place and is blessed. And here we see her commitment and her obedience. So we see something in her. Her life is focused 
on, on what Jesus says. And let's take a look at that. And before we enter any deeper into that, let's ask ourselves a second question. Because I would like to ask you, you know, how do you treat his word? Because the one thing is God's holiness, but the other thing is that we need to understand is the significance of the word. And maybe I'm shocking you now, and I'm sure none of you, uh, is, this applies to none of you here, but something I've observed is that most believers of our time slumber a very quiet spiritual sleep. And if you've ever been traveling in South America, maybe, I think Jose and Antonia would also be able to tell us uh, nice stories there, where they come from. You know, we need to wake up from our slumber. And I believe the Lord wants to visit us again here in the church, but also in Germany. We are caught up in spiritual slumber. And many times we confuse our feelings with the Word of God. And many times... We live a very prosper prosperity-oriented Christian life or uh, very much um, feel-well Christianity. You don't even realize that. You go to services, you do the things that are right, but that's not the point. The key thing is, if the Lord asks us for something that we don't really enjoy, we are experts in twisting the will of God the way that we kind of like it or can go along with it and maybe you just ask yourself what happens when the Lord is asking you for something that you don't like how quickly do you give up because we live in times when we are quick to give up to throw chuck in everything and to say no I can't go on that's the spirit of this age or do you live in a way that you Actually, uh, that you are actually focused on God's perfect will. The question is how to do that. Or do you live in a way that you are frustrated easily? We are hungry for God. But my friends, God's fire is something that will set us on fire so much, will set us into motion, will make us hungry, that the Lord is actually able and will ask you for unusual things. And many times this actually doesn't happen anymore, and we live our spiritual lives and talk about revival that maybe happened some time ago. And maybe, maybe you're not in the services here, but wherever I travel, I realize that maybe people told you that comprom making compromises with sin and the world are just a mark of being open. I tell you that's not true. Tell the person next to you, no compromise. Do not compromise with sin. And many times we actually need a fresh start with God. Many times we try and find our own way in how God would like to be pleased with things without us actually coming into agreement with God says, what God says about things. I believe many times we need a radical new start. Maybe you need a radical new start with God. And so just think about it briefly. Whether you or me or we, wherever you are, maybe you're joining us on the internet, can you actually have such an encounter with a living, holy God? 
Hat es schon lange aufgehört mit seinem Maybe you've lost his peace and joy a long time ago. If not, that's wonderful. But I encounter too many believers who don't live that way. And we need to understand something about the word. And we know John 1, verse 1, it says, it's about the word that has become flesh, right? Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and so that's Logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We know that verse. So it's a direct reference to Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word. And then we continue in verse 14. And the Word, Logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. So now we see the glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So maybe you know, or probably you know these verses. And this is about Jesus. And so we see in the beginning there was the Logos word and the word was with God. And many times we miss this with because this with actually signifies a, a an intimate relationship to him. So the word had an intimate relationship to the Father. So there was fellowship right unto eternity, eternal fellowship with the Father. Intimate relationship, that means you are completely focused to the other person. Maybe you've just fallen in love, you've just found a boyfriend, girlfriend, and everything you have, everything within you is focused on the partner. Every fiber of your being, your heart, you know, suddenly you dress differently, you feel differently, suddenly in your iPhone you see the other person, or maybe you develop relationship, you seek spending time with the other person, you're focused on that person, it's an intimate relationship. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I'm sure the older married couples, you know what I'm talking about. So just take a look at your spouse and tell them, yes, darling, I know what he talks, what he's talking about. So that's an intimate relationship, being focused on that person. So I live in agreement with that person. And then maybe you get married. And actually, somehow you have to kind of quit your single lifestyle. Some of you maybe experienced that. Maybe the younger couple is here. And then suddenly your wife says, oh, you still live like a single person, like a bachelor. And the husband still comes home late and he still acts as if he just uh, enjoyed the company of his buddies more than anything else. But at some point it will change. And they come and live in agreement. They discover that they are living in partnership. Well, okay, I think you understand what I'm talking about, okay? And so this is how it was with Jesus and the Father, right? You can have such an intimate relationship, and you, you can only have an intimate relationship to Jesus when you love the Word, because Jesus is the Word. You know, at one point somebody shocked me because he told me, you only live, love Jesus as much as you love His Word. Because they had asked us, you know, how do you treat the Word of God? And I said, oh, I don't know. I hardly have time reading, you know, I think it's important, but... But then they told us, no. You can only have an intimate relationship to Jesus if you have that intimate relationship to his word, doing it. If every fiber of your being is focused on the word. And so, 
Sometimes the counseling problems get solved very easily. You know, if you just want to be with Jesus, come to him and not to your counselor, first of all. Of course you can, but first of all, come to him. Just be immersed in his presence. Come to him. And this is what Jesus says, that he who loves me keeps my word. And that takes us to the next level. The one thing is being immersed, an intimate relationship, and the second thing is keeping his word. And so you married couples, if you are together, and the husband doesn't keep his word, he always says, darling, I love you, but then he promises something and lives something completely different. At some point, something in the wife's heart will close. The vice versa also, you know, the wife promises things and never does them. So that means a relationship is always connected to the fact that I actually keep my word and do what I say and not just listen to words. In James 1.22 we read, but do the word the logos and not just be, don't be just hearers because otherwise you deceive yourselves so doing the word of God is not an option it's not something that I can say yeah I'll do this but I don't do that and I pick and choose whatever I want but the word of God doing the word of God actually means keeping everything because Jesus is not just one word from the Bible but he's the word okay and so that was kind of the preparation so for us to be able to understand what's next. Now recently I've been doing a lot of research here on Lord, how do you want to prepare us as your people, as your church for a time that is very much marked by people living for themselves, by an individualist lifestyle, by people, the time is very much marked by secular humanism, by this claim that everyone is faced with, that we need to live in a way that everyone needs to choose their own way to salvation. And that is something that has really come into the church now. It's even amazing to see that within the charismatic movement. It's amazing to see that how many people are just doing their own charismatic thing and everything is supposedly of God and everything's right, everyone's reconciled, everyone's holy, everyone's right. I sometimes wonder why that bears such deadly fruit. Something doesn't seem to work quite that way. How can we actually live in agreement with the Word of God and be focused on Him? Somehow, it seems to be a principle in the Kingdom of God. So, if you, for instance, want to change your car's tires, they need to uh, be especially put into balance because unless you do that, maybe the tires start uh, going all wonky and if they do, they will be damaged at some point and then you, uh, will that your car will stop. And if we live our lives with, with God and are not focused on Him, our spiritual lives start, be, start being really difficult and really wonky. And there's many people, I hope there's not too many, but I know some 
if our lives are unbalanced, then, you know, the, if people are not balanced, they do one false movement and then their spine goes out. And, and you know, the, the result is terrible pain and they can hardly move anymore. Maybe there's even symptoms of paralysis and then they go to a chiropractica before they receive prayer, of course, but then that doesn't work. Some medical person comes and just gives them a yank and all of a sudden everything is balanced again and straight again. So everything is balanced. And then you see all of a sudden pain is reduced, there's stability in your life, and suddenly you can move again. So somehow that seems to be part of God's nature. And you can find many other examples as well in many different areas, almost every area. And if you've got a Bible with you, let's take a look at Amos 7, because that's where you find the level, okay? And there we can see, men mentioned many times in the prophets, Amos 7, verse 7 and 8, this is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. So do you know what a plumb line is? So, in order to have a wall that is uh, true to plumb, uh, you know, that's uh, a plumb line was the early version of a level. And so the Lord said, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. And then the Lord said, see, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. So that's a symbol, right? So when you build up a wall true to plumb, and if it's not true to plumb, whether that is the wall of a house, of a high-rise building, depending on how many levels and stores there are. But if it's not really true to plumb, it is very instable. And at some point, it will collapse. And an image for of the house is not just the image for the church, but also for us, because we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So, to be true to plumb, in balance, and without being tested by a level or a plumb line, you cannot build a house. The Word of God says, don't build your house on sand, but build it on the rock, because otherwise it will collapse. And so, the Word of God says, unless the Lord builds the house, the house is built in vain. So we need something like that. And many times as believers, we live without being focused on the will of God. We are not true to plumb of His Word. We are not leveled to be in agreement with his word or a different word in Luke 1 verse 17 it's also something we find there it speaks about this being true to plumb and, and being he will go ahead of him in the spirit and the power of Elijah and then it's very interesting to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom or the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this is what it's all about. Uh, to prepare a people to make ready a church, a kingdom of God that is made ready, equipped and full of power. 
And this word here that is said about John the Baptist is a word about the spirit of the last time. But what is to happen? And it's very interesting. You all know the word in Malachi where it says, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the hearts of the children. And here it's different. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And my friends, that's where it starts. It's a completely different different attitude to turn to is I am turning towards someone I don't remain where I am and I want to tell you my friends once you have attended a foundation course a faith building weekend you are only at the beginning of what God wants to do with you but if you've lived with the Lord for 10 years you need to know that the Lord wants to continue with you and that he wants to place a new hunger in your heart and if you've lived with him for 30 years you are to know the Lord's not finished with you yet. He wants to turn our hearts to him. So something happens in our hearts and we focus them again on the will of God. And here it says that the hearts of the fathers and the people are restored and turned to the plans of God. And why the hearts of the fathers to the children? I can tell you, because the new generation always represents the fire and power of the Holy Spirit. It always represents the generation of the children, the new generation represents commitment and a radical lifestyle in the kingdom of God. And now just, you know, in private as fathers and mothers here, if we've lived with the Lord, or you are maybe 30, 40, 50, and then you say, oh, wow, we don't quite have to be that radical. We don't need to be quite as given. Oh, they want to go to missions. Oh, what about their securities? They need to have, you know, a security net, a safety line. And the older you become, the more you are actually as father and mothers, you are uh, in danger of being someone who actually stops their children and slows them down. So actually the Lord wants to turn the hearts of the fathers and mothers back to the children. That if they are living with the power and, and fire of the Holy Spirit, that's what this passage is all about. Who are committed to following his word, say, I want to serve the Lord. And we say, yes, Lord. We receive the fresh fire of what's happening there. Fathers who are turning to their children once again and say, I release you, I bless you. I am excited about the fire of the Holy Spirit. And the fathers and mothers who are also living in the fire of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And what happens? The children are excited when they see that and say, oh, once I get to be 70, 80, 90, I want to be like that. Do you remember David Hathaway? I tell you, my friends, we're not waiting for one David Hathaway, but I tell you, you are David Hathaway and you are Lady Hathaway. So turn to the person next to you. You are living in the same fire of those men and women of God. And the word hasn't, isn't finished there yet because it says, and he will, and so let's, let me repeat that. It's a prophetic view for our time, for what's happening here right now. And he will turn the disobedient, the rebels will turn to back to God and it will be restored in order to no longer live in rebellion but to live in submission to the living God.
And my friends, one mark of this time is that it will no longer be spiritually politically correct. But actually, it is no longer politically correct to preach about sin. We will, we will continue to do that. But it's no longer politically correct. And preaching discipleship is no longer politically correct because being focused on the will of God is not politically correct. And a repentance of, of sin and a turning away of sin and pride, that's not politically correct. But I tell you, my friends, we are faced with a holy God. And I know that when I stand before him, the Lord is very careful in looking at my heart, always asking me, I... Am I living in the right attitude to meet with him? Am I living in humility? Because he cannot have fellowship with a proud spirit. He cannot encounter me whether when I just walk in my own ways and have him just as a band-aid on top of it. He cannot bless me then. How can he possibly bless me when I'm not focused on him in an intimate relationship? That's why so many things go amiss, because so many people just take their own decisions and don't ask about his ways. You know, we need to live in dependency on God. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I tell you, that's so glorious. It's the greatest blessing there is. And so we need to be focused again on uh, we need to turn back to God's world, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children from generation to generation, and to turn the hearts of the disobedient, it says, and those who live in rebellion. Many times you even can't tell that from outside. Somehow there is a spot in their hearts that they decide no longer to live that way. That's God's goal. It's what it says here. It, that's what God wants. To live in agreement with his will. So let's look at the next word. You know... Many people are praying for political things, and it's correct. Many people are praying for world problems and crises. I'm sure we need to do that. But you know, the world is not God's problem. Because, you know, he created the world in six days. So he just would have to speak one word and it is done. The much bigger problem is our hearts. And he's been doing that for thousands of years now. For all of salvation history, he's been doing one thing and that is winning back our hearts. You know, for our hearts to be in agreement with him, this pride and rebellion and self-contentment and for all of these things to just go away. And you know, when you discover these things in your life, just throw them out. Let's throw it out because we miss out on so much. Life as a believer without his fire, without the power of the Holy Spirit is such hard work. But whenever our spirit is re revived and woken up and when he can come, then suddenly we have joy and peace and glory in our lives. Luke 3 verse 4, let's take a look at that. That's the second to last word I want to read. And so it was fulfilled what it says in the prophet Isaiah, there's a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So again we see that, the prophet Isaiah, a prophet, prophetic view, every valley shall be filled in and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth and all mankind will see God's salvation. 
Also, was hier steht, ist, And so what it says gerne, here is, I want you to focus your heart, to make straight what is crooked and perverted, is to become straight. And he speaks that about his people, his church. And what Isaiah says here, somehow the human heart is, is crooked, is perverted, it's just uh, has its, its self in sentence. But once it's made straight, we walk in God's ways, the following happens that the low places, the valleys of depression are raised up and the high mountains and hills of pride and what is lofty is made low. And the Lord says, I want to make it straight and make straight roads and paths. And sometimes he can only do that when we surrender our ideas to him. You know, we've got so many ideas and concepts. We've got our own ideas, how God is supposed to do things, or experiences. He's never done it that way. But he wants to make our path straight. The crooked ways that just miss him, you know, are devious ways. He wants to make them straight, straight paths for him. To have straight ways in our hearts and our relationship to him. Acts 1 verse 8. Amazing to end up here because that is the vision verse for our ministry, for TOS, ever since its inception. And I really have to admit that actually it's only been since the March of the Nations last year that I understood the second part of this verse. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, actually, we know it's about the power of the Holy Spirit, about being filled with the Holy Spirit, about being equipped with His strength. But we also see an order, an agreement with the Word of God. To be witnesses at first in Jerusalem, that's where the first congregation, the first church was, and then Judea and Samaria, and then it went into the nations. And then we suddenly realized somehow the Lord is also leading us. There was the March of the Nations in Jerusalem, and now this year, in 2019, we will have marches uh, in the cities of Judea and Samaria, March of the Nations in those cities in Israel. But also there's something else, and we can see the plans of God here, what's happening. With the early church, the gospel started spreading, and now we are in a movement when the hearts, the Lord is turning the hearts of the nations back to Israel, to Jerusalem. Before they went out from there, and now he's turning the hearts back to Jerusalem. So that's one line, it's an agreement with his word. So the Lord is taking us to the right position, like with a successful team, sports team. He is doing that at this time now, and it's amazing to see. It's amazing because it's like uh, a rift that is opening wider and wider, and whether that's in China or South America and Africa, wherever, you see images now of big churches that bless Israel and that honor the fact that Israel is chosen and that are in agreement with the fact that Israel is chosen. So God himself is bringing it into agreement. 
At the same time, you're seeing something here, like armies are gathering, and people are getting up, and in their hearts they are struggling against Israel. And so it's like two different armies that are taking positions, two different spheres that are established. And so the Lord wants us to live in agreement with his word, with his will, because that is the source of blessing, the fountain of blessing. And I would like to slowly come to a close here, but let us, let's think about this. First of all, living in that such an intimate relationship to Jesus in agreement with what he says, his word. And that's true for our families. What does that mean? You know, for maybe the way you rear your children, bring up your children in agreement with the Word of God. There's so many different ideas how to do that, experiences, what we want, what we don't want. Oh, that's the way I've been raised. That's why I would never do it that way. Cultural backgrounds. But the Word of God remains the same. Or maybe in the church. The Word of God is very clear, unequivocal. How to live in the church, what that means. To live in his ways, in agreement with his will. Also in the kingdom of God. In agreement with his will. Seek first the kingdom of God and then everything shall be added unto you. So the Bible is full of examples here. And this brings us back to the story of the wedding at Cana, as I promised. The miracle was only able to take place because the mother of Jesus, Mary, that's not what she's called. Here, she's only called the mother of Jesus. In the other Gospels, it speaks about Mary because they don't have uh, the story of the wedding at Cana. But here, in obedience and agreement with the will of Jesus, that's how she lived and how she spoke. That was it. So, she probably, Jesus does not tell her yes, you know, just because she comes to him and says, Jesus, they have no more wine. And she says, he says, woman, what do I have to do with it? And she says, Jesus, they, they need your help, do something. And Jesus, I don't know what his response was, but he doesn't do it. He says, my hour has not yet come. And I don't know how long he was waiting for. He says, my time has not yet come. Okay, what does that mean? Three years later, maybe? I don't know when his time did come. That sounds so amazing. But maybe it was just ten minutes. My time hasn't come yet. Jesus, you know, please, what do you mean? But the mother just says the following thing. She doesn't say, you know, oh no, I'm offended. This Jesus, you know, he still needs to learn something. Oh, well, you still have to learn something here. Well, you should be kind to your mother. No. She says to the servants, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. At the right time, but then act immediately. No later, not, not at some point, but whatever he says, do. So immediately, instant obedience. Doesn't matter how strange it might sound, doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. He could have said something else. But then he said, you know, there's these jars for ceremonial washing. And they were empty. 
So it wasn't even sure yet whether the uh, wedding uh, ceremony uh, actually was according to Jewish customs, you know, because the jars for purification was empty. But they just did whatever Jesus uh, told him. They, he could have told them something else, but it, the key was they did what he told them, even if they didn't understand. I mean, we are sometimes champions saying, ah, yes, Jesus, I don't really understand why you're asking me to do this. But you know, the most things that Jesus is asking of us, we won't understand because he's a holy God, because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So whatever he says, do it. And while the mother of Jesus said this, he sees her commitment to his will. And that is the time of transformation when waters change into wine. I mean, someone did change water before, you know. You remember at the plagues in Egypt when the water of the Nile was changed into blood. It was a sign of judgment. But here, obviously, it wasn't a sign of judgment. It wasn't blood, but it was wine. And what happened here was the changing, it was a transformation of religious law and hard work, and the wine represents the new covenant in his blood, the new thing that Jesus is doing. And what the Lord wants to do here everywhere, no matter where you're from and how religiously you've been raised, no matter what culture you're from or how long you've been living for with Jesus, he says, my kingdom is, is a kingdom of peace and joy and not of religious hard work. My kingdom is a kingdom of commitment and it's a kingdom of living in agreement with my will. But wherever you do that, the mark is that you have given your life and live in the new covenant of my blood and that you have a part, a share in this covenant. And this covenant is the sacrifice that Jesus brought at the cross. So the first miracle even was a sign for what Jesus was going to do at the cross. And so maybe you're here and Jesus is asking you now, saying, hey, just throw out all of your compromise, all of your religious achievements. How about your intimate relationship to Jesus and his word? You can't separate that. How about your experiences and securities and all those things that are limitations around us and that, that don't allow God to do what he wants to do in us? And maybe today is the time of truly a new beginning with him, being radical with him. I don't want to live under religious law and in religious hard works. And maybe it's your decision today that you would say, I want to finish with all my inner rebellion. I no longer want to live on those hills and mountains because what is lofty shall be made low. I don't want to live on the heights of my pride. Maybe nobody is able to see that, but I say I am the deciding factor for my own decisions. 
but rather we say, Lord, I want you to make me live in agreement. I say yes, because you're a holy God. You know, we have no other option. But he is a holy God. He is the Lord. And that's true for every area of our lives. There are sometimes areas that we push him out. You know, family, relationships, church, or things that are connected to our experiences. It's true for any aspect of our lives. And maybe that will mean that we need to be very practical and say, I am so caught up in this individualistic, charismatic mindset. Here is my own religious thing, my own religious experience. I lay it down before you. And maybe you are someone who kind of twists things spiritually until it's fitting for you and the way you like it. That's the way we are. It's human, you know. But if that had been the case, the 12 disciples would have stayed home. They would never have become apostles. The Mediterranean would never have heard the gospel, and we wouldn't be sitting here today if that had been the case. There would never have been any revival. God would never have been able to use us, but he wants to use you. But he will not do that unless we come into agreement and we are aligned with his word and his will. And let's do something today, but different to other days and times maybe, but let's in closing here, as an altar call here, let's take communion together. And I want to invite you to join us. But I want to invite you not just to go and take communion as a religious act, but take a look at your life. Let's see this as the chance of a new beginning. A new beginning with the living God. As a chance to come into the position that God has actually given to you. With his authority, his joy, his power, his fire, his excitement, his love. But actually, as someone who actually lives in his kingdom and who takes their place in his kingdom, whom God can use, and that's the greatest treasure we can receive. And we'll do it this way. We'll give the opportunity for you to pray with someone before. We'll have a group of people here. You can go to them when you realize, okay, you really want to have such a new beginning with Jesus. You want to throw out compromise. And you know, a new beginning when we've lived in compromise is truly a new beginning. Or you said, well, for the big things, of course, I asked God. But actually, you know, if you don't even, if you can't even listen to advice of people, how can you listen to his voice? These two go together. So you want to come into an alignment with him, with his word, with his guidance. And let's pray together here. And so, my friends, let's stand. And then we'll just have the opportunity for you to pray personally.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, your goodness, your mercy. And we thank you for your wonderful fire. You're a holy God. And maybe we can worship him like this. Because he's holy, and because of the blood of Jesus and his grace and mercy, we can come to him. Maybe you've lost your relationship to him, and he wants to restore that, this love relationship to the Lord. But Lord, we're coming to you, and we thank you that you're even moving here in this service already. Lord, you are having a personal encounter with us and you don't condemn, but you don't leave us the way we are. But you're changing us because you love us.